Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 343rd episode of Awards Chatter the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a singer-songwriter who has recorded and produced 32 albums over the last 45 years, several of which have gone gold and platinum. But what makes this three-time Grammy nominee such a trailblazer and a rarity is that his music has almost exclusively been created for children. Indeed, the Los Angeles Times called him, quote, the first children's music superstar, close quote, and, quote, the Springsteen of the preschool set, close quote. The New York Times said he is, quote, a superstar for the nursery school set, close quote, and is, quote, widely credited with setting a new standard for children's music, close quote. And the Washington Post described him as, quote, the most popular children's singer in the English-speaking world, close quote. I'm talking, of course, about Rafi Kavukian, the 2006 recipient of the Fred Rogers Integrity Award, who is better known to and loved by kids as simply Rafi. Over the course of our conversation, the 72-year-old and I discussed his own childhood, which he previously described in his 1999 autobiography, The Life of a Children's Troubadour, as, quote, melancholy, close quote. The invitation that in the early 70s led him, an aspiring folk singer and guitar player, who was trying to be like Bob Dylan and James Taylor to perform in front of children for the first time, and how that in turn led to his breakout 1976 children's album, Singable Songs for the Very Young, and his first concerts for children in 1977. Why, at a couple of points over the decades since, he has taken years-long breaks from writing and performing music, and how he came to devote a great chunk of his time to what he calls his legacy work, the Rafi Foundation for Child Honoring, which offers an online course in, quote, respecting earth and child, close quote, at rafifoundation.org. How this month he is marking the 40th anniversary of his greatest hit, Baby Beluga, with a Yo-Yo Ma collaboration and a new verse for the song that speaks to this fraught moment in time and is aimed directly at adults who grew up on his music, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Rafi, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's a real privilege to get to speak with you probably, uh, I don't know, 30 years after the last time I was in your presence, which was at a New Haven performance where I grew up in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. And um, and anyway, just, a, just such a thrill to see you. And on this podcast, we always begin with just a, a few basics about our guests. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Cairo, Egypt, of an Armenian family. My mother was a great storyteller. My father was a renowned portrait photographer, went by the name Kavuk, which is yes. my surname, just abridged a little. And your father, I read, was actually a, a musician in his own right, right? He was. He played uh, violin, balalaika, and accordion like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> When you came to Toronto, you were about 10 years old, and I wanted to ask you just what precipitated that move, why your family decided to do the move, and also how you adjusted to life in Toronto, which I, I'd be curious to know why they picked Toronto as well. Well, my father scouted out uh, three locations in 1957. He said Montreal had too much snow. <laughs> New York was too big, although he loved it. <laughs> and he mm -hmm. said Toronto felt just right. Plus, we... You have a family that could sponsor us. <laughs> Got it. And it is, a, to this day, a city of a lot of immigrants and seems to be very welcoming. Yeah, it was a great yeah. city for us to, to land in. It was, it was great. When you arrived, how was your English? <laughs> Spotty, <laughs> at best. Spot. I was learning it. I, you know, in Cairo, I, I had learned a number of languages. I spoke Armenian at home and I heard Turkish from my grandparents. Uh, I was speaking Arabic, the, the language of the land there. I was speaking, and, and I was learning in school French and English. So I had a little bit of English and was really quick uh, learning it once I got to Toronto. Many people from non-English language speaking countries who move to North America and are trying to learn English say that they find it very helpful to watch English language television or listen to English language music. Was listening to music something that, you know, you did when you got here? And was that helpful in a way? Sure was. Uh, we used to uh, have two uh, pop radio stations that kind of fought each other for <laughs> ratings. And, uh, you know, to hear uh, even Pete Seeger songs on pop radio at the time, uh, This Land is Your Land. Then to hear the, the Beatles, the Stones, Motown, Dylan... Joni Mitchell, oh my God, what an, what an amazing uh, soundscape to learn English in. But I'll also say that the black and white television on Saturday nights, man, I watched Hockey Night in Canada and my favorite player was Frank Mahovlich of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I want to tell you one more little uh, detail. Saturday afternoons, there was the baseball game of the week. 
from usually from a, a Buffalo station, either NBC or whatever it was. And I loved watching baseball. And you'll never guess who my favorite player was. Hank Aaron of the Milwaukee Braves at the time. Yes, yes, yes. Hammer and, and uh, Hank Aaron, the, the home run king. Now, isn't that interesting? This little, you know, pudgy Armenian guy, right? Comes to Toronto. He's 10, 11 years old. And who do I notice? Hank Aaron. There was something about this gentleman. He, he was a gentleman. And he could hit, hit it out of the park. So yes. that combo, uh, yeah. That did it. Yeah, that's amazing. So you have said, quote, the guitar has been my friend since I was 16, close quote. So how did you and that friend meet and why did you hit it off? <laughs> well, we met in the pawn shop where I laid down 24 bucks and I said, I'll take that, please. <laughs> and, and then I, you know, it was this uh, nylon string Kent uh, guitar, as I say, $24. Which is probably three hundred and seventeen in today's money. Anyway, <laughs> but uh, I, I just started playing every song I could uh, figure out, including you know Beatles songs and such. And and uh, wow, it was qu quite an opening of, of a new world for me to be able to play an instrument and have songs come alive. So at that point, if you can take yourself back in time. What do you think was driving your interest in even getting a guitar? Some people, you know, might say, oh, it was a way to meet girls or to become a rock star. What was it for you? It was a way to meet <laughs> girls. <laughs> <laughs> and there's one other thing. In fifth grade, uh, Mr. Horton brought, it, brought a friend of his in one day and he said, my friend's going to play us a song. And uh, this guy came in with a 12 string guitar and he played Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. And I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Uh, it was an amazing, and I, and I thought, I want to do that. Yeah. Well, so as someone who has brought a lot of happiness to a lot of kids, I think people might assume that you must have come from a childhood that you would describe as happy yourself. And yet, reading your autobiography, I know that you've said that, you know, there were maybe more appropriate adjectives than that, like melancholy, and that, you know, you've said that you had some some issues with your parents. And I just wonder if you, you know, as you look back today, all these years later, how do you remember your own childhood? Well, it was a, a complex time. I remember the beauty of my surroundings in Cairo, especially because my family used to, on Sundays after church, we'd go to uh, the pyramids in my father's Studebaker, <laughs> two-tone green, I might add. <laughs> but, you know, much as I delighted in you know, playing in the Cairo sands and drinking uh, pop, uh, you know, and eating uh, falafel sandwiches and such, there was at home uh, a lot of tension. You know, we were an Armenian family, uh, not in our homeland. And there were tensions in the parenting. Uh, I mean, I, I knew I was loved. That was the saving grace. I knew my parents loved me dearly. But did I feel respected for who I felt I was? No, I did not. And you might say that was the birth of the child-honoring philosophy I later came to espouse. But I do describe in my autobiography childhood as being a time of great bewilderment. If they loved me so much, why did I feel that at times they took out their frustrations on me? Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems like you actually did interact with your father in a musical capacity, in a sense, also, because wasn't he the choir master of the church choir that you were 
a part of. Was he respectful and rec- did he recognize your talent at an early age? I, th- I think that aspect of it was fairly good, yes. Uh, I mean, I always got nervous when I had to do solos in church and so on, but that's just, you know, part of uh, part of it. But, um, yeah, the, those uh, beautiful, melancholy songs <laughs> of, of the... <laughs> the church Armenian service in Armenia were quite something. Uh, beautiful harmonies, laden with harmonies and soulful music. And I think that was actually, it's interesting you mentioned that. That was, uh, uh, you know, part of the, the ground of my musical being in my teenage years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the time comes and you eventually head off to the University of Toronto. I know you were off to a great start there, honor student, doing very well. And then... A couple of weeks before your second year exams, you decided to check out. That six was, weeks before. <laughs> six weeks, six weeks. So that <laughs> now that must have been a major decision. And I wonder what motivated it for you and how it went down with your parents to to leave school, I guess, because you were going to go focus on being a musician. Yeah, I was focusing in, in second year. Mostly that's what I was doing. I wasn't going to class much. <laughs> playing guitar, writing songs, and just wanted to be a James Taylor. So, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd heard somewhere that if you didn't follow your heart's calling, that you might regret it all your life. And I thought, I ain't regretting this. I'm just going to go give it a try. And my, my dean at the time said, oh, no, no, man, you got to stay. You got to cram get your year and all this kind of stuff. And I said... It wouldn't mean anything to me if I did manage that. I don't think I could anyway. But I said to him, if I'm meant to be a teacher, which I thought I might do, I said, I'll come back and I'll study and become a a proper teacher. But for now, I got to leave. And what that involved, well, first of all, I guess, let me come back to how did your parents take that decision? It was tough, but I had to do what I had to do. And so... You, I know, embarked on performing in coffee houses and clubs in Toronto and Montreal. I've read that you were hitchhiking to Vancouver, I believe. Uh, what was the music scene like that you were a part of in those days when you were just trying to make your name? I remember being in Boston and hearing the song, uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash song, Woodstock, that Joni Mitchell covered so beautifully. I dreamed there were bombers in the sky they turned into butterflies over our nation. Oh man, the Vietnam War was raging. I mean, I was just shaking at what was happening in 1970, early 70s. It's interesting because as I now recall, no wonder in 1974 I was glued to the black and white TV set watching the Watergate hearings. You can imagine how I feel currently. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> we'll come to come to that. But I guess, uh, you know, were you somebody who immediately found that you were comfortable performing in rowdy bars and coffee houses and all no, that? Or I mean, did you fu- no, it was, no. A, it was a living. You know, you, I was trying to make a living as a folk singer. And sometimes it was a rowdy bar that paid well. Sometimes it was a folk <laughs> club with 15 people in it, you know. And sometimes it was a folk music festival. I did play a few festivals. But... In general, it, it wasn't the most comfortable career for me, I, you know. So when children's music came and knocked on my heart, as it did in 19, well, early 70s, and when I made that first album in 1976, 
mm-hmm. there was almost a relief in me of, of, oh, there's this music that's important for children, and I seem to be good at it, or, or so I'm told when I go to the preschool and, and sit with kids on the floor and I'm making them laugh and <laughs> having them join in. I thought, oh, well, this is interesting. You know, and the kids aren't going to heckle you like at a bar or, or disregard. It wasn't yeah. easy to let go of, of you know my other singing, but my folk singing. But I came into a broader sense of myself. I think learning about children, and and I studied early childhood informally to to get to know this new audience that uh, that I was you know I found myself in front of. And uh, well, I'd like to ask you about how that first opportunity, that first time that you found yourself in front of children even came about. And I, I believe it started really with, you know, through your relationship with, with your then wife and actually her mother-in-law, a lot of people, you know, the, the running joke is they complain about their mother-in-law, but in this case, your mother-in-law, uh, I guess it was really her idea that set you on this path. Can you explain how you wound up in front of nursery uh, school kids in the first place? Yeah, she was an angel, my mother-in-law then, uh, and ran a nursery school in North Toronto. And she knew I sang, and she said, why don't you bring your guitar in and sing for the kids one day? And so I turned to my then wife, who was a kindergarten teacher, and I said, uh, what should I sing? Because <laughs> <laughs> Baba Black Sheep was not part of my childhood, right? So mm-hmm. I had to come to learn word for word the children's classics, you know, the traditional songs that I, I started out with on that rug on the floor, uh, with a few kids and a, and a couple of teachers, and then I was asked back. Oh, apparently it went well. I was asked back, and then once again, and and so this led one day to uh, the idea that you know an album for for young children would be a really wonderful uh, contribution to their lives, and you know make the songs singable. I was told singable, so that children could make them their own. And I stopped to think singable songs. That sounds good. <laughs> hey, I just got it that my first album had singable songs, and then my fourth one, Baby Beluga, the alliteration. I just <laughs> you're, 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 you like your alliteration. But, but those, and those are the two most successful of my albums, are the ones with oh. alliteration in the title. I just got that. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I want to ask you, it sounds like actually singable songs for the very young was actually not your first album. That's your first that went big, but you, at least according to the the records that I've seen, you actually had an album the year before that was not targeted at children, but that you had recorded and also put out through your own label, Troubadour. My first, uh, my first album, actually, that I founded my label on was called Good Luck Boy. And it was a sweet little folk album, and, you know, uh, one of the songs that I wrote, which was called Feel Like a Million, it was a, a song about friends, was covered by George Hamilton IV, of all people. Imagine <laughs> that. But, you know, in life you have to kind of, at times, pay attention to what's happening. And as I said earlier, when when the children's music, when the thought that this was important work, when that landed in my heart and this heart of a frustrated folk singer who was never really going to be that successful at it. I I came to understand that when I was about ready to hang up the guitar, this other career opened up. And uh, am I ever glad I said yes to it? Yes. Well, you know, between that 
initial performance at the nursery school and the the first children's targeted album, the second overall album, Singable Songs for the Very Young, which, as you say, came out in 76. Were you early on able to deduce why children responded to you in particular? What was it that they were liking about you and your music? Well, when Singable Songs came out, it seemed to be an overnight hit with all the parents who heard about it. They were buying it in threes and fours from me when I happened to be at a library or another preschool performance. There was something irresistible about that album, the music in it. I, I don't know. Um, it helped, of course, that Danielle Lanois was the recording engineer for the first four of my children's albums. <laughs> and he later did U2 and all kinds of stuff, right? He did yeah. Neville Brothers, U2, and he's just a phenomenal musician. But he was a recording engineer. Ken Whiteley, multi-instrumentalist. I couldn't have done that first album without him. He stayed with me for several albums, you know, and he guided the, the musical production and, and such. So that was great. But I think there was something in my voice, in my a way of offering a song to children. Uh, I could be excited, but I never drove them to frenzy. It wasn't my aim. That's too easy to do that. It doesn't respect your young audience. I thought of, you know, the song meeting them halfway type of thing. You, you, you just... But the most important thing maybe is that there is a playfulness in my singing. And play is what young children understand even before they know that that's what they understand, because they're immersed in it. That's their way of being. So I think when they heard the playfulness in my voice, they felt I was a friend. And I think that's still, that's still true. I guess just, I think it's interesting, the logistics of, you know, you, you had no way of knowing with that album that it was going to be the phenomenon that it became. Can you just set the scene of how grassroots an effort it was even to put the album together. And I mean, these are, it's 19 songs, some of which are pre-existing that you did your own take on, like Down by the Bay, I believe. Down by the bay, down by the bay, where the watermelons grow, back to my home, I dare not go, for if I do, my mother will say. Did you ever have a time... When you couldn't make a rhyme Down by the bay, down by the bay Where the watermelons grow Back to my home I dare not go So, I mean, I guess when you went to the nursery school, you mentioned you were performing songs that your wife had kind of, or that, that you had to learn, pre-existing songs. That's a very different thing from then going and becoming a, a talented writer of children's songs as well. That, that just... Well, just a couple of yeah. originals on that first album, and then an yeah. adaptation of Old MacDonald had a band, <laughs> you know. I was still, you know, mostly with traditional songs and just a, two or three of my own for the next three albums. Baby, even on Baby Beluga, 1980, my fourth album, mm -hmm. I think there were three originals, uh, maybe four. Fourth one was an instrumental. Baby Beluga, All I Really Need, Thanks A Lot. And it blew my mind that people told me they loved those songs as much, if not more, than the other material. I went, really? Mm -hmm. That's kind of <laughs> what I was thinking. Gee, I, I think I've got something here. 
Well, I would guess that maybe even before that, there must have been a moment kind of like that because the year after Singable Songs for the Very Young came out, you started performing not like just for a nursery school, but a real, real concerts for the first time. And and when when you show up there and find out that people already know all the the lyrics to and songs that you've had on your album, what's that moment like? Ah, a good moment. <laughs> really good. Yeah. I remember um, that that was the case not only in Canada. I was performing around Toronto. 1981, my first performance in Portland, Oregon, first time south of the border. The concert had been set up by a children's bookstore where my albums were sold. I don't think cassettes were happening right then. Anyway, again, same thing. 500-seater was sold out just on the, the, the fact that enough people bought my album and loved my album that they told everybody about it. We had two shows there. It was amazing. And they all sang along with me. Um, now, mind you, I also had folk singer chops from my Pete Seeger uh, adoration and, and so on, and I knew what a good singer Pete Seeger was. When I say singer, what I mean is he engaged his audience so beautifully. I learned from him how to engage an audience, and so my folk singer well, chops think, came in handy. I think he, like you, also encouraged his audience to sing with him, right? Which is not something, not every singer likes that. No, I, I loved it right from the start. It was great, because it was... It was about the more we get together. That's, that was the spirit of it. Oh, the more we get together, together, together. The more we get together, the happier we'll be. There's Chris and Tanya and Jason and Justin. The more we get together, the happier we'll be. Okay, are you ready? And I think it's not a coincidence that you would typically, I believe, open your concerts with that song, right? Yeah. <laughs> How did you arrive at the idea? I believe that from the very beginning, your concerts were generally 45 minutes. How did you know that was the length that would work with this audience? Well, in the early 70s, if you said to someone, well, what's a, a young child's attention span? They, they'd say, what attention span? <laughs> <laughs> and also, interesting, at that time, the phrase, the very young at that time meant three to seven-year-olds, <laughs> not zero to four. <laughs> and, and that really became a, a, a bit of an issue, right? Because people were bringing infants. Well, yeah, but even apart from that, yeah, no, I mean, you're right. I, I did need to, uh, you know, come to know how to work with the, the evolving <laughs> situation. <laughs> but, uh, but 45 minutes seemed like, you know, plenty like you came, you know, we were all we were all together. And the other thing I did, apart from saying these concerts are forty-five minutes in length, I said that right on the poster, right up front. Uh, so I chose not to have an intermission, and I chose not to separate the kids from their families, from their parents, to come down on stage. You know, a few of them, yeah. or a hundred of them, or something. You know. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want parents pointing at their kids. I wanted the family singing together with me. So those mm -hmm. are two mm -hmm. things that were, I think, pioneering in my concerts. And I'm glad I did it that way. Absolutely. I guess let's come back to Baby Beluga for a moment because 
this was in 1980 the the album of that name with the with the song obviously of that name came out and i guess you know because it is maybe as closely associated with you as any song i'd be curious to know what if anything and specifically inspired you to write a song about belugas and why you think that song in particular has resonated so much with with now generations of of kids <laughs> Well, I, in 1979, I was performing in Vancouver. I think I had two or three children's albums out that time. And I went to the aquarium, first-rate aquarium in Vancouver, and uh, they had a, a beluga pool where they had two belugas. And Kavna, the beluga that I met, because I, I, I was, I was going to write a Save the Whale song, and I, and I introduced myself to the Aquarium people and they they let me come come on to the to the platform right right by the pool and they introduced me to Kavna. I was starstruck. <laughs> what a magnificent creature. Oh my goodness. Not only that, but with the trainer's help, Kavna came up out of the water, this rather large <laughs> creature, and kissed me on the cheek with her nose. Wow. She could have easily knocked me over, yeah. easily, yeah. right? She did that twice. I couldn't stop talking about it for like a month. <laughs> anyway, I went back to Toronto and um, decided that my Save the Whale song would be a love song because if you love something, you want to protect it. Mm-hmm. And it was suggested to me I make it about a baby whale. And I said, why? And the answer is because children love babies. Baby beluga in the deep blue sea Swim so wild and you swim so free Heaven above and the sea below And a little white whale on the go Baby beluga Baby beluga Is the water warm? Is your mama home with you so happy? It seems like your interest in environmentalism and animals, just in the health of the world at large, that was already in place way back then? Yep. What do you think started that? Well, I think the, the, the movement to save whales, I mean, even in the early 40s, we were concerned about the state of whales worldwide. That was one thing. Mm-hmm. But um, you may remember that in my autobiography, when I was 13, I won a a poster contest. I drew a poster of a peaceful forest scene. At the top of it, it said, keep it peaceful. And there was a tree in the middle with a little sign that said, no hunting, and a bird perched on it. So these things are mysterious, you know, how influences come to you and how, how you grow up to be the person you become. There was something, even back then, to the city dweller, you know, living in Toronto, but occasionally, my family would take a drive out to see the, the fall uh, colors of the leaves, right? And, oh, I would just be so delighted to see the beauty. That had an, an effect on me. So I, I, I did this poster, and I, I won this contest, the <laughs> Smokey the Bear Fire Prevention Poster Contest. So I'm just citing that as another interesting little uh, nature awareness, because I wanted a peaceful and I wanted there to be no hunting. How's right. that for a guy who 
then goes on decades later to have a philosophy called child honoring that has nine principles, one of which is nonviolence. <laughs> Absolutely. It was, it was there. The seed was there very early, clearly. Um, what do you think the role was? It seems like you, your rise to, to prominence coincided with the rise of the audio cassette and the video cassette. So uh, obviously there were record albums and, and uh, LPs or whatever before, but do you think that there was something about the fact that kids could pop in either a cassette or a video, uh, uh, audio or a video cassette so easily and have you around at any time that, that really solidified their relationship with you in a way that might otherwise have been impossible? That's an interesting point. The cassette may have had, may have had something to do with the growth of my popularity, but I, I think it was still parents, by and large, who made the purchase. Mm-hmm. That's that's mm-hmm. important to remember. And and parents told me they they felt great about you know buying my music because they didn't have to leave the room when the kids wanted to hear it. Yes, yes, as these albums were coming out and your popularity was growing, how did you handle the idea of, you know, just being a well-known person? I know that kids are maybe not going to, on the one hand, it might be a different sort of fame than if it were, you know, the Rolling Stones or something. But on the other hand, I'm sure it changed your life in a, in a lot of ways. And I just wonder how you adapted. Well, I was um, thankfully doing yoga and doing meditation at the time, and that helped you know, just to kind of stay centered and grounded amidst the growing popularity. But certainly I remember doing shows in Vancouver at the Vancouver International Children's Festival at the time in the early 80s. They kept making the Rafi tent bigger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Finally, we had a 1,000-seat tent, and I was doing like 10 shows. I mean, it was just <laughs> during the week. It was amazing. Uh, but, you know, clearly I come to make a comfortable living. And I was so grateful, so grateful that I said yes to this important work. I was growing as a person. I was learning all about early childhood as the foundation of human development. And that that learning certainly uh, was important when, it, when the child honoring vision came knocking on my door. But the more, you know, the more I learned about early childhood and the people that we become based on that first early experience, because you're either you're either hemmed in by that first experience, or it becomes something that, you know, if if it's an experience of constraint, you have to at some point heal that experience, because your spirit as a child is not one of constraint; it's one of possibility. So, I think understanding the nature of the young child, the creativity, the wonder was an interesting, it played an interesting second fiddle to my, you know, appreciation of the natural world, my desire that we not, we not foul our nest, you know. And, and it's interesting, I mean, to, it's interesting to, to, as I'm doing in this conversation with you, I'm, uh, I'm hopping back and forth between decades. I mean, currently, my Rafi Foundation, our slogan is respecting earth and child. Mm-hmm. Well, how mm-hmm. sweet is that? <laughs> perfect, perfect. It's an integrated vision because to do our best for the child, we have to do our best for Mother Earth, whose children we are. It can't be any other way. 
Yeah, and you said that in your TED Talk as well mm-hmm. in a very you know powerful way. In 1987, you put out an album called Everything Grows, which the title song of that I think is one of your most beautiful. Yes, everything grows and grows. Babies do, animals do. So it seems like, you know, by all appearances from the outside, things were really going great in your career. And yet in September 89, you're 41 years old and you held a farewell concert at Carnegie Hall. People were clamoring to get in and scalping tickets and everything. Uh, Why did you decide at that point to sort of stop making and, and performing music for a while and what were some of the things that you learned during that hiatus over, over the next few years? I needed a rest, for one thing. I needed a year where I didn't have another conscious schedule. You know, it's really good for uh, touring musicians to do that. But during that year, I also noticed, uh, I paid attention to the state of the world. 1989 was when Time magazine put Planet Earth on the cover. Do you remember that? And, it's, yeah. and it said Planet of the Year. I mean, instead of Person of the Year. And the Earth was actually in flames. Well, that, not just that, but a five-hour, five-part radio series, CBC radio series with David Suzuki about global warming, 1989, Mm -hmm. called It's a Matter of Survival. Those two things really powerfully moved me. And I, I felt that I wanted to Take some time and do something different. That's why I recorded what I call my ecology album, Evergreen, Ever Blue. I was all excited about maybe going in a different direction, maybe singing to older kids, kids old enough who can make a difference, because it's not the job of a five-year-old to save this earth. But to say the least, even though the album you know, has done fairly well, it's you know, had a quarter million uh, or more in sales, which is not bad for an, an environmental album. But it didn't, you know, it wasn't the remake of Rafi, if you will. Mm-hmm. It, that didn't mm-hmm. work out. So, and also my marriage ended at that time. It was a very um, challenging two or three years. But I returned back to the concert stage in 1993. 1994, inter- interestingly, 1994 was Banana Phone. Boop it up Ring, 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 Banana Phone. Ring, 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 Banana Phone. I've got this feeling so appealing for us to get together and sing sing so yes. by then i i regained my mojo and, and my, <laughs> my 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 laughter and my you know i was playful again <laughs> absolutely well I, just to come back to one thing that i read about during that during that period of i guess 4 years when you were away from the public eye you have spoken about the fact that there were things that you were finding about yourself that had maybe changed since you had become a public figure that you were yourself not 
especially happy with. You talked about the fact that when you were recording things with, for instance, your wife and two other collaborators at the time, you would find yourself, this was, I think, in your autobiography, quote, being upset if the three of them were having too good a time, close quote, or or things like that, where I, I wonder if, was it just sort of perfectionism or was that something about what what had happened? No, there, there was the perfectionist in me, of course, and I, I worked uh, through emotional uh, counseling to deal with that. I traded it in for happiness. One thing along the way to the, to, Starting your your current work, I think this was a year before the found before you had the the vision to uh, of what child honoring even was. That was in ninety seven, but the year before something happened in your life, and I wonder if it's not related. And that is that I've heard people say that when you're you're in a way always a uh, a child until both of your parents are are gone. And in your case, you within a, a, something crazy like just a few hours lost both of your parents in 1995. How hard was that for you to go through that transition in, in, in your own life? And then did do you think it had anything to do with your shortly thereafter coming upon this idea of child honoring? Well, losing both parents on the same day is extremely difficult. You suddenly feel orphaned, you know. But you you also take a deep breath and you grow up yet again. You know, you're now your own father type of thing. I wrote about it. Well, that's, in fact, as you know, in my autobiography, that's the first story I tell. It's called Pas de Deux. But I don't think that was a factor in the child-honoring vision coming. I, I think that I was writing essays during that time about how a child-honoring world, child-honoring world might look what would it be for a society to honor its young? I was ask, asking that question, writing an essay or two here and there. And I think the reading I was doing at the time, Our Stolen Future, was one book by Theo Colborn and two other writers. And uh, don't forget that I had met Al Gore in 1991 and read his book, Earth in the Future, in which he talked about how ecology should be the central organizing principle of society. That really made an impact on me. But by 96, I was saying to myself, ecology is a great word, but nobody knows it. And I said to myself, when you said the word ecology, if you thought of your young child, if the face of your young child was linked to a philosophy that became the central organizing principle of a society, that might have power in it. And so it started out really with this vision in 97, then a co- a three-paragraph covenant for honoring children in 99, then nine child-honoring principles in 2000, and then eventually what we now know as the Rafi Foundation dealing with child-honoring. And uh, I wonder, for, for somebody who hasn't yet read your autobiography or, or you know, become acquainted with, with the foundation, when you talk about child-honoring, I'm trying to think what somebody might, they hear child honoring, they might think, you know, just let the kid do what they want or whatever. Can you define what you mean by child honoring? Yeah, and thank you for that, because I've said for a long time, it's not about, uh, it's it's not about permissive parenting at all. I wouldn't, that wouldn't honor the child. 
And it's not about a, a world where children rule far, far from it. It's the opposite, actually. It's about a society that values its young, a society that creates the opportunities for every family to do well. I mean, if you ask me what kind of economy I would want to see, I would say one in which no child goes hungry. And that's not a political statement, that's a human statement. Because, Scott, if you argued the opposite, I would dare you to name which child should go hungry. Mm-hmm. It's morally repugnant to think of a world where some must go hungry. I So child honoring is both a philosophy and it's a way of life and it's a lens through which we see a world that might have its priorities reordered Mm -hmm. because it's really about redesigning society for the greatest good by meeting the priority needs of the very young. Now, I'll pause there and say the priority needs of the very young are both universal. All young children need the same thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interestingly. And, and they are irreducible. They're not entitlements in the negative sense. Every child is entitled to love, to dream, to belong in a loving village. So with young children, entitlement is the way it is. That's what they need to be healthy, to, to grow up with a positive, affirming sense of their first impressions of life. So... Child honoring is a call to all of us who care about children, who care about this beautiful Mother Earth, to live with respect for one another. Respect has been the core value throughout my career. And you really do practice what you preach in ways that I don't know how many other people could be so faithful to their core beliefs, because let's just, if if I can just note a few things that you've done that really made an impression on me. I, I understand that you turned down what must have been a very lucrative offer to from the producers of Shrek to turn Baby Beluga into an animated movie because what reason, can I ask you? Because they would be marketing it directly to children through fast food outlets and whatever and can't have that. It's mm-hmm. not ethical to advertise and market something directly to children who are too young to understand what what is being pitched at them. You also apparently, I, I believe, have always turned down commercial endorsement offers as well for similar reasons? Yeah. It, and it's, it's never been about anything but the music. I didn't want to use the music to sell something. It's to sell a product. Right. Unfair. And then the last uh, of these examples I just want to mention because I think it's very it's worth noting is you were offered what a lot of musicians would consider a a dream gig to perform at Madison Square Garden, from what I understand, and you declined to do so. For what reason? It wouldn't have been a, a happy thing for little kids and their families. Uh, too big a venue. <laughs> yeah. So here we are 40 years after Baby Beluga, and you have just recently released a new version of the song in collaboration with Yo-Yo Ma. And I wonder if you can just explain how that came about and why you've added the verse that you did, because I think it's it's uh, very special to see you still singing the song, but also speaking to the current moment. 
Thank you. Uh, during this uh, pandemic, Yo-Yo Ma found himself, uh, of course, not touring, and he uh, at some point started uh, collaborating with other musicians uh, in what he called songs of comfort. He used that hashtag. And so he reached out to me to see if I would do a collaboration with him. When I mentioned Baby Beluga, when I mentioned the new verse, he said, that sounds great, you've got to include the new verse. So that's how that came about. I recorded it from my kitchen on Salt Spring Island. Talk about coast-to-coast -coast physical distancing. <laughs> and that's he, right. <laughs> and, and he performed so beautifully from his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The song you've said is, is in a way aimed at what you call beluga grads, which I guess I am one of them. Yeah, baby. <laughs> uh, what's a beluga grad for people who don't know? And what is the 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 message of the new verses that the new verse that you've added? Well, a beluga grad is an adult who who when when a child was was singing Rafi songs, you know, including Baby Beluga, and the last. The uh, verse basically says, Grown up beluga, grown up beluga, sing a song of peace, sing a song of diversity, of child honoring, social justice, climate action. We need to hear you. So it's a, it's a call to Thank action you. to the tens of millions of beluga grads who have grown up with this music to take part in the mobilization of awareness and action to deal with the climate threat that is upon us, which is going to make the pandemic look like it was just a minor matter. When we finally yeah. wake up to this other imminent threat that the whole world is affected by. So I also recorded, you may know this, I recorded a a song inspired by Greta Thunberg and the millions of climate strikers. And I really stretch out when I write these songs that are not in the, the children's genre, you know? And this is a, mm. an up-tempo song called Young People Marching. So I'm doing whatever I can to bring awareness and inspire people to do their part uh, for uh, our lives, for our children's futures. I, I like to say the young have a first call on our moral duty to stabilize climate and secure their future. Now you've grown and you're on your way Making waves in the boundless bay You're a shining light and your dreams alive For the ones you've brought this way A song of diversity, child honoring, social justice, climate action. We need, we need to hear you, Beluga grads, and me on the go. With our last minute or two, can I just do something we like to end on called rapid fire? Just the first sentence or so that comes to your mind about a random assortment of topics. So over the period in which you've been a, a high profile public performer, which really basically coincides with, with my lifetime, it seems like our 
society has become more cynical, jaded, coarse. How have you managed not to become that? It seems like you are still the same sunny, optimistic person you've always been. I'm playful. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's yeah. important. Play is a, a vibe all its own, you know. And, and also I have the child in me very, very much alive and wondrous and curious. I'm curious about everything. Have you noticed that the children in your audiences have changed over the years? Is there any marked difference? You know, the world around them changes, so that affects them. But their irreducible universal needs at the start of life, that does not change. Their need for respect, so for respectful love, their need for nourishment, uh, affection, shelter, all of that doesn't change. Some people are surprised to learn that you are on Twitter and that you will you will engage on matters of, you know, politics and current events. If you could say today, not on Twitter, but just verbally, anything to the president of the United States, someone who's presided over things that affect children in, I, I'm sure, ways that you're not happy about at the border and things like that, what would you most want to communicate to him? I would communicate my words to the electorate. Mm -hmm. I would say resist fascism, defend democracy, and vote. What is it most important for kids to be thinking about during the pandemic, which has obviously rocked their lives? Well, it's tough for kids because they've been confined for a long time. So it's a time for kindness, by not only by kids, but by the parents that they're living in. And sometimes they're in tiny apartments. Sometimes they're in homes, but they're still not able to see their friends and hug their grandparents and so on. Speaking of kindness, I, I did want to mention, um, I'm going to mention an album that's all about kindness. It's an album yes. by Massachusetts singer Lindsay Monroe. It's called I Am Kind, Songs for Unique Kids. I mentioned the album not because I produced it, which I did, but because, honestly, this is such a beautiful expression of kindness, not just the title song, but through the vibration throughout the whole album, and I highly recommend this Absolutely. What is your favorite song to perform at your at your concerts? Besides Baby Beluga? <laughs> it might well, be, I was gonna... <laughs> well, it might be Banana Phone because I make banana jokes afterwards. Yes. And everybody Does knows the part... jokes and they still laugh. It's so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Does any part of you say to yourself quietly, because I know you don't say it out loud, but, oh God, I have to sing whatever, you know, Baby Beluga again. I Do you ever get... I don't you know. I just think about my audience. I think, oh, you know, they're here to sing with me, and uh, I bet we're going to have fun with this one. That's how I look at it. Do you sing in the shower? Hey. <laughs> Doesn't everyone? <laughs> <laughs> what is a well-known song that people might be surprised to learn that Rafi loves? Maybe outside of your genre. <laughs> Moon River, wider than a mile, I'm crossing you in style someday. That's a beautiful one, absolutely. What is the biggest misconception about Rafi? <laughs> that he has no last name. <laughs> <laughs> that he still uh -oh. wears Argyle socks. I don't, I tell you. It was just a phase. <laughs> last three of these quick ones. Uh, 
You never had children of your own. I know you've often been asked about that. And I wonder, is that something you have ever wished you had had? Uh, it seems like you would have been a fabulous parent, but obviously you, as they say in Goodbye, Mr. Chips, uh, the the movie and the book, the line there at the end when, when the teacher is dying, he says, quote, I thought I heard you saying it was a pity, pity I never had any children, but you're wrong. I have thousands of them, thousands of them and all boys. So uh, I think about you and I, I mean, you have more children than anybody, but I, I have more, uh, I have just more that, girls actually. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I don't um, know. I, you know, it's just, it was one of those things, it was a personal decision, and uh, my albums became my children in a way, but uh, I'm young yet, you know, I'm only 72, so hey. <laughs> yeah, get on it. <laughs> so uh, lastly, I guess, what's it like when you meet grown-ups who were fans of yours when they were kids, like uh, outside of a concert setting where they're bringing their own kids, but I, I mean, there must be some pretty memorable moments at cashier, at cash registers and with waiters and all kinds of things. So what's that like for you? It's always an honor <laughs> to meet some fans, you know, in the grocery store aisle who want a selfie right there, you know, and we just have fun with it. I, I just stay playful with it. Well, on behalf of my family and this and this going gray beluga grad right here. I want to thank you uh, so much for all the happy memories that you provided and for doing this. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. I, I really enjoyed this uh, romp through yesteryear. And yeah, I, I send my love to uh, all my fans and all those who are afflicted with this virus and all those families who've lost loved ones, all those who are struggling and to all the essential workers on whom we depend, I not only say thank you, but I want to say to you, Scott, that I've written and recorded a new song, which will be released in a couple of weeks. And it's got Lindsay Monroe singing with me. It's a duet with her. And you're never going to guess who's going to join us. Yo, yo, ma. <laughs> ah, fantastic. And the fantastic. song is called For All You Do. It says, we can say thank you for all you do. Wow, that's, that's awesome. And thank you for all you do. And uh, stay safe. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's series regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker, and a truth teller. 
Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you.